as Aubrey said, is this on? Is it? Okay, great. As Aubrey said, uh, my name is Father Jay Trailer, and uh, along with my wife Elizabeth, we bring you warm greetings from one of your sister parishes, from Church of the Apostles in Raleigh. Uh, in a little less than a month, we will be relocating to Stanton. We're going to join the, uh, the Stanton church plant, and we're going to start to be part of your incarnation world. And it is my, truly my great pleasure and my privilege to be with you today as we open God's Word together. Um, one note, because I've never preached here before, I tend to occasionally take a step or two to my left inadvertently when I'm preaching. If that happens, somebody else just come up here and read this. It'll be fine. So we're continuing uh, the study that you all have been doing in Micah. We're in chapter 7 today. Let me pray for us as we, as we open God's Word. Good and gracious God, as we wait expectantly to celebrate the birth of your Son, we ask your blessing on this time in your Holy Word. We pray that these words from the prophet Micah would lead us to trust more fully in your promises, to listen when you correct us, and ultimately we pray that you would use this time in your Word to draw us closer to you and closer to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This is the last Sunday in Advent. In Advent, we kind of, we look backward and we look forward at the same time. Uh, we look backward to, to the already, to the it's already happened reality of Jesus' life on earth. We look forward to the not yet, to the future promise of the return of, of King Jesus when we will live with our God with resurrected bodies and unveiled faces together forever. And so as we gather together, we, we exist every day in that, that in-between space. You know what I mean? Between the already of the birth of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the, the not yet of the king's coming again when he gathers us to this huge table and we celebrate the marriage supper of the lamb with him forever, a feast that never ends. And in this passage... The prophet Micah is basically singing a song about this king. It's a great picture of, of who King Jesus is for us right now in these in-between days, between the already and the not yet. We see Jesus in an all-knowing light in our is an all-knowing light in our darkness, and we also see Jesus as the holy God who forgives sins. In Micah 7, this bit of prophetic poetry. The prophet Micah is speaking on behalf of a people who, who knew that they had sinned. These people could acknowledge what they had done in sinning against God by, by what they had done, by what they had left undone, and, and what were those sins. We don't have time to read it, but, but he sums them up in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7. Well, he's, he's been summing them up for the entire book. He looks around the people of Israel. He looks at their rulers. He looks at the, at the everyday people in the cities and the towns. And he sees that these people who are, are supposed to be the chosen people of God. And he looks and he says that there is no one righteous. He says that they all spend their time literally practicing what is evil. Just to make sure that they can do it really, really well when the time comes. <laughs> it's an ugly picture that he paints of corruption and greed. The leaders of Israel, as Aubrey said so perfectly last week, the leaders of Israel were exploiting their own people. The judges were approving it. And the preachers refused to denounce it. Micah sees a nation of God's people where things are rotting from the inside out. But he ends that section. He ends verses 1 through 7. He says, but as for me. He says, but as for me, I'm going to look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. Micah is saying, look, everybody else is out for themselves. They will rob and kill and steal. 
They will deceive and they will manipulate because they only trust in themselves. They are their own God. But as for me, he says, I know that God will fulfill his promises. I'm going to look to him and only to him and not to what the rest of these fools are doing because only God is righteous and true. And so then kind of, kind of starting to personify what a repentant Israel will look like, he, he basically, the rest of this chapter, he's basically singing a song of, of, of realism, but a song of hope. Yes, he will trust in the Lord, but he knows that that doesn't mean that life is going to go great. If you want to follow along with me, look at verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. What's, what's he saying here? When I fall, he knows he's going to fall. He expects it. Even, even the righteous fall all the time. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Micah knows that it's going to get dark. Yeah, I know I'm going to fall. I know I'm going to sit in darkness. That doesn't mean that my God is evil. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love me, and it doesn't mean that God has abandoned me. We know, we know that God humbles us. We know that God disciplines us, and we know that when he does, it doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. He does it to refine us. He does it to shape us and mold us so that we end up looking more like Jesus. The people of God fall, but God lifts them up. Even when we sit in darkness, Micah says, God can be a light to us. When terrible and awful things happen to us, God never, ever abandons us. The world is broken, and sometimes terrible things happen to us. And sometimes we do terrible things to others. And God is there. God is real. He is in control. If you are here today, and if you aren't a Christian, that sentence, God is real and God is in control, that sentence is one of the foundational principles of our faith. But don't for a second think that if you become a Christian, your life is going to get great. In fact, much of the Bible, including Micah, including Jesus himself, says that, that when you follow Christ, not only is your life not guaranteed to get better, it might actually get noticeably worse. But it isn't going to be because God has abandoned us. The prophet, the prophet Micah, singing on behalf of his people, he's singing to their enemies, and he's saying the only reason that, the only reason that this is happening, that you are oppressing me, the only reason that bad things are happening is because God is allowing it to happen. Life can seem genuinely chaotic, but we know that God is sovereign over all things. We know that God is in control. If things happen to us for no reason, then the only thing that we have left to trust in is either blind luck or random chance. But because God is in control, we can know that even in the midst of the worst thing that you can imagine or the worst thing that we can hear about that happens to someone else, we know that God is in control. And we know that in a way that we might never understand until Jesus comes again, we know that God is working all things together for his glory. And sometimes that can be a really hard thing to hear. But the alternative to that is so much worse. The alternative is suffering and evil that is completely devoid of meaning or purpose. It's just empty, random darkness. There's a, a poem that I was reading this week called Nocturne. It's by a, a poet who's also a homicide detective named J.M. Jordan. He writes about a time in the middle of the night when, when the streets have gone quiet, the crowd has died down, and the more sinister things of life creep in. 
He says the, the rats fight in shifting shadows around the city square. He writes that it's 3 a.m., that strange hour, when gangs of theologians prowl the streets looking for some strange angel to accost. And the rails have ceased their humming, and the watchmen end their rounds nodding on stools in darkened corners. It's a, a very quiet and a very grim picture of a city of darkness. But Micah would say, Micah would say that even there, in that 3 a.m. darkness when the watchmen have fallen asleep, we know that God is there with us. And more than that, we don't have to find a way out of that darkness ourselves. God will lead us into the light. When we are suffering, either because of something that we did or because of something that someone did to us, we still have God with us, always. In the midst of darkness, we cry out to God because he will never abandon us. Those can be the hardest times to seek God when everything is falling apart, when we can't figure out which way is up. But those can also be the times when we somehow sense most closely the presence of God, when we can find peace and joy in the midst of suffering that is completely unexplainable apart from the good grace of God. Because we can't, that, that kind of peace and joy that you can't just will in yourself to happen. You can't make yourself feel joy. But in those times of suffering that Micah is talking about, God will come to us with his light and he can give us a peace and joy that we can never find for ourselves. For the last year of, of my life, uh, the last year of our life, my, my vocation, uh, my, my ministry in Raleigh has kind of been in doubt. I was supposed to be a church planter there, and through some turmoil in our church, we eventually decided that, that there wasn't going to be a church plant. And so since about last January, Elizabeth and I have just been in this time of not knowing what's coming next. We had moved from Washington, D.C. to Raleigh to plant this church, and now the church isn't going to happen. And so where are we going to go? What are we going to do? How am I going to provide for my family? And so all I can tell you is, even in this time of genuine uncertainty of having no idea what was going to happen next, through nothing that I bring to the table myself and through nothing that Elizabeth did herself, we felt this sense of peace from God in this entire thing. We felt a sense of, of joy from God, even in the midst of uncertainty and anxiety and pain. And that's the kind of joy that God can bring to us. If you're in darkness, and if, if like Micah, you don't know why, you, or if, if like Micah, you know exactly why it is, and it's because of something you did, run back to God. Trust in his mercy. Go to your pastors. Ask them to, to meet for a time of confession and repentance and assurance of forgiveness. God is our light, and he will lead his people out of darkness and into light because God restores his people. It's the promise that he makes. And then in the passage, God, uh, Micah talks about the, the restoration of the land itself, this promised land that God had given to his people. We look at verses like these and we say, okay, this, this all sounds great, but how, how is this going to happen? What does this mean for me? When is this going to happen? And to a certain extent, the promise of, of God restoring his people, the promise that's made in Micah has already been fulfilled in a sense. The Israelites, what, what was called the, the righteous remnant of the Israelites, they actually went into exile. They went into this time of darkness, and they did come back. By 538 B.C., the, the Persian conqueror of Babylon gave the Jews permission to go back to their homeland, and the righteous remnant of God's people got to go home. 
So God led them out of darkness. He led them into the light of the promised land. So Micah prophesied that this would happen. And in one sense, it's already been fulfilled. In a grander and more cosmic sense, coming out of darkness and into light, coming out of captivity and suffering, coming into restoration. In a grander sense, all of that points forward to Christ, coming out of true exile of sin. And so the light that guides us out of the darkness, out of the darkness of our sin and our unbelief, is Jesus. Because of, because of the cross, because of the resurrection, because of Christ's ascension, we are restored to God's loving embrace. That's genuinely the good news of the gospel, that Christ's sacrifice for us was such that we were brought out of darkness into light, that we were brought back to God. And so in part, this prophecy is fulfilled in Micah's day or shortly after. In part, it's fulfilled every day for us as we are restored to God. But in terms of of the kingdom, in terms of the kingdom of God, of how in Micah 7 the prophet is seeing this kingdom of God expand, we can't say that's completely happened yet. Because even after God restored them from exile, Israel never retained or regained its former glory. It has never had that promised moment when its, its boundaries were extended, like verse 11 says. It's never yet had a day when people streamed into Israel from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, like verse 12 says. And there's never been a day when the rest of the earth has been completely desolate because of the actions of its inhabitants, like verse 13 says. So what are we supposed to do with this? How does this prophecy deal with us in our lives today? Well, if it's already been kind of fulfilled, but it hasn't yet been fully fulfilled, then either means that the Bible is lying, or it just means that it hasn't been completely fulfilled yet, but it's going to be. And so this Old Testament prophecy, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it has to be pointing to something bigger than itself. Micah, whether he knows it or not, has to be pointing at something greater than just a national victory for the Israelite people. It must be talking about the reign of the Messiah. The reign when King Jesus will come back in power and might and splendor, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, when that happens, it's going to look like what verse 11 in this text says, because the boundary of his kingdom is going to cover the entire earth. And it will look like what verse 12 says, because people from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain, from every tribe, nation, tongue, will come streaming into the kingdom to feast with their king. You know, throughout the Bible, God is referred to as our shepherd. And Jesus tells us himself that he is our good shepherd who God sent to take care of his flock. And so at the end of this passage in Micah, Micah starts exhorting God to be the shepherd that he says that he is. He calls out to God to shepherd his people because they've been scattered and because they are not where they were meant to be. Verse 14, he basically says that the sheep are in a forest. Sheep aren't made to be in a forest. Not a ton of grass there. Not great for grazing. Sheep are made for pastures, and pastures are made for sheep. So please, God, Micah says, please bring these sheep out of the forest. Let them graze in the good grazing lands of Bashan and Gilead. And Micah calls on God to to do for your people just like you did when you brought them out of slavery in Egypt. We think about that, and you think, did the Israelites do anything to get themselves out of slavery? No. It was the unmistakable and miraculous power of God. 
God rescued his people. He worked miracles. He drew people to himself. And he showed his mighty power to those who were opposed to him. That's what Micah is crying out for. Shepherd your people in a way that amazes your followers and strikes your enemies deaf and mute. And of course, that's exactly what God has done. That's exactly what King Jesus, our good shepherd, has done. And he did it through the greatest miracle of all. He did it through God becoming a man who died and then was raised from the dead so that through that death and resurrection, we might become the children of God. Just think about that for a second. God has promised to shepherd his people and bring them to the state that they were born for as a sheep is made for good pasture and good pasture is made for sheep. And God does that through the absolute greatest miracle that we could ever imagine, which is the miracle of forgiveness. And that's where Micah ends in this passage. Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnants of his inheritance? See, again, that's when we become the children of God, we are his inheritance. And so he says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. If you believe that, how do you not want to praise a God like that? When we sit in shadows, he shines a light to scatter the darkness from before our path. And he forgives our sins and he passes over our transgressions. And he does this because of his covenant love for us. You may have heard this before, but I think it's worth talking about a lot. You'll you'll hear in the Bible the phrase steadfast love or, or covenant love. It's the Hebrew word hesed. And we just do not have any one word or phrase in English that can do it justice. It is the unbreakable, never stopping, always and forever love that God has declared for his people. He has made a covenant with us which he did not need to do. And it's a covenant that he has sworn by his own holy name to keep forever. And it doesn't matter how hard we might try occasionally, we can never outrun the love of God for us when we are in Christ, when we have been adopted as his children. We can never outsin the grace of God when we are in Christ, when we have bent the knee to King Jesus, when we have been adopted as one of God's own. Because like it says in verse 19, he will again have compassion on us over and over and over again. And he will tread all of our iniquities under his foot. Treading our sins under feet sounds a lot like Genesis 3. When God promised Adam and Eve that that eventually a descendant would come from Eve who would crush the serpent's head with his heel. And that passage in Genesis 3, which is sometimes called the first gospel, that promise of a deliverer who will defeat Satan, that deliverer is the one whose birthday party kicks off in three days. Jesus, Jesus who crushed the head of Satan, his great serpent, with all of his lies, along with all of our sins, all of it ground into dust under the heel of King Jesus. Over and over again in the Bible and in our own lives, we see and we know that life is hard and unjust and others sin against us and we are in that 3 a.m. world of shadows where nothing feels like it can ever be good. And God is our light, always. And again and again, over and over, we sin against God and against our neighbor. 
And again, when we trust in Christ for our salvation, when we are joyful servants of King Jesus, God again and again has compassion on us. And he continues to grind our sin into dust under his heel because of his covenant love for us. And so in in closing, as we prepare to celebrate the birth of King Jesus, I'd ask you to reflect on the words that we heard from Philippians 4 and, and apply them to those Micah 7 times in our lives. Apply them to those 3 a.m. world of shadows times in our lives. In Philippians 4, we heard that the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests, let your prayers, let your crying be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we are in the dark, if you don't hear anything else that I'm going to say, listen to this. When we are in the dark, the Lord is at hand. When we sin against him, when you have done the thing that you hope God didn't notice because you're not sure how you could ever be forgiven for it, the Lord is at hand. When he draws us out into the light, the Lord is at hand. When others say to us, where is your God in the midst of all this sorrow? in the midst of of local tragedies and national calamities, where is your God? The Lord is at hand. And, and, in that day, in in the, the not yet, which we pray will come soon, in that day when he comes to bring all of his people to his table to feast with him forever, the Lord is at hand. And so, let's remind each other of that this week. Let's tell our friends who don't know him this week as we celebrate the birth of King Jesus that the Lord is at hand.